Our passage is in 1 John chapter 5. We'll be looking at 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. Um, but I want to say this about this section of Scripture before uh, we dig into it, because really it's not uh, germane to the main message, but it requires some clarification. If you have a King James Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, that is totally fine. It's a wonderful uh, translation of God's Word, rich in history uh, and accuracy. Uh, and so I have no qualms about you being mad. I cannot believe it is the only version that you uh, But it is a quality one, perhaps. But if you have a King James Bible, then you will notice that one of the verses that is in your Bible is not in what I read this morning. Um, that is because uh, the way that we come to have received our Bibles is rooted in the fact that it was originally written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. Uh, that's what the original authors wrote in. Uh, for the New Testament, writing in Greek, John, the apostle, wrote the letter of 1 John in Greek. And after he wrote it and reached his destination of the church that he was sending to it, or the, the series of churches that he sent it to, it was copied down and then recopied and recopied. And, uh, and that's how it ended up coming to us. Uh, it translated from Greek into uh, it's very reliable that what we have was what John wrote. It's really not up for all that much debate. It's very, very reliable. It's a whole uh, science slash art that is devoted towards understanding uh, what the original manuscripts were. It's a very good science, a very interesting topic. We won't get into much detail now, but just know that what you have in your laps is a reliable copy in general of what John, the other apostles, the other writings of Scripture, originally wrote. Once in a while, there is a verse or a couple of words, uh, even that time the paragraph that shows up, uh, that is called into question. Was this originally what John wrote? And in this portion of scripture, there's a verse that's very well known uh, to be a late addition. In other words, John did not originally write it, but it ended up in some manuscripts later on down the road. So John wrote in about 85 or 90 AD, and if you trace the manuscripts down until about 1400 AD, um, that's where this sentence first shows up. In King James, it's verse 7, it says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in her, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, these three, three, one. At verse seven, about the testimony in heaven of the Father, Word, the Holy Ghost, is pretty much unanimously recognized as something that shows up for the first time in about 1400 or 1500 AD, hundreds and hundreds of years after John wrote. And, uh, uh, and it's known to be just a scribal edition. It's not necessarily wrong in what it says, but it's not what John originally wrote. So as I read my uh, copy of God's Word, if you have a King James, you'll see that that's not in there. Uh, not pulling any tricks on you. Uh, this is just uh, the way that uh, manuscript uh, science works. Um, and there's more to the background. You can read about it. It's an interesting story. If you have questions about it, you can come talk to me. I just want you to know I will not be addressing that 
verse any further as we dig into this portion of prophecy. Uh, you do not, by the way, have to have any concerns about Bible you lap, whether it's King James, ESV, or NASB. Uh, it is a reliable witness of what God has recorded. And the reason that we know uh, verse 7 is in there is because we know what was originally written by the Bible. And so it gives great knowledge. More than that, if you have a James copy, uh, that verse uh, is not untrue. It's not like it's teaching heresy uh, at all. So probably more than I wanted to say about that, but um, we'll, we'll leave it at that. First John chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testified, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning the Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God is the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God is not out. God, together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that this word of truth, the very scripture, would be used by you through the Spirit to encourage us, strengthen us in our faith. And Father, I ask that you give us a greater confidence in the eternal life that you have given us, that we know that we have it, Lord. But for those who struggle with this, with wondering if they have eternal life or if they don't, I pray. That even this morning you would come and show them, Father. If they don't, that they would know that they don't. And if they do, that they would know that they do. And Lord, we pray that you would do this with abundant more because we are about to all this is what we ask before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The aim of this letter of John, its first epistle, is to have believers in Jesus Christ know that they have eternal life. In fact, the very next verse, after where I stopped reading, is the central purpose of the letter. 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a big goal. The big goal to try to have people know something with absolute certainty, and what they know is really the biggest thing that you could ever know. That you have eternal life. That's not some flippant topic. It's not nearly as insignificant as, say, choosing what restaurant you want to go to eat at. We're talking about that which has to do with your soul for all eternity. It involves both your life right now, with the kind of life that you live, as well as where you will be for all eternity, whether you're in God's kingdom or outside of it, in outer darkness. It is eternal in every sense of the word, forever. How can we even begin to fathom how important that is to you and me? And forever and ever, without end, 
you will either be with God or absent from his blessing. Nothing more important could exist than for you to know whether or not you have eternal life. Actually, more important is whether you have eternal life. But attached to that is whether you know if you have eternal life. We talk about this topic of assurance of our salvation, knowing that we know. A lot of times this descends into simply thinking about how we feel on any given day. Do I feel today like I have eternal life? To put this into the realm of how we feel, we do that with a lot of things in our life. We try to put it into the realm of emotion. Because we are a feeling kind of people, some more than others. But we all have emotions, we all have feelings. We have feelings of anxiety, feelings of peace, feelings of comfort, feelings of security, feelings of worry. Sometimes we let those feelings infiltrate into our knowledge of whether or not we have eternal life. We might think, I just don't feel like I have eternal life. I just don't feel like it. Notice what the main point of this epistle is. That you may know that you have eternal life. This puts it into the realm of the rational into the realm of reason and knowing for certain, not how we feel on a given day, but what is true. That's what matters. But knowing that we have eternal life just goes into the realm of who we have placed our trust in and trusting him for the right reason. Knowing that we have eternal life is much more rooted in the facts of history in the intention and plan and person of God, in the word of God, and in the demonstrable work that he does in our lives. It all rests on his word. I wish, in a sense, that I could just say that I assure you that you have eternal life and you take my word for us. Actually, I don't want that responsibility to strike me. That'd be way too much. But when we talk about a topic as big as eternal life, it takes more than just an individual like me or any of you in this room saying, you have eternal life. It's got to rest on something more solid, something more foundational, something more trustworthy. And what we ultimately rest our trust on, how we, at the end of the day, know that we have eternal life, is because the God who has eternal life in himself says you do. That's what we put our trust in. Whether he says it or not. Not how we feel. Not what someone else tells you. But what God himself testifies to you. Gives legitimacy to you knowing if you have eternal life. That's a rock worth standing on. Whether God has told you you have it, or a God has told you you don't, that's what happens. That's the point of this passage. That God himself has given testimony that eternal life is in his Son, and those who believe in him have eternal life. God has said it, and who are we to doubt him? That's the main point of this passage. God himself has testified 
for the legitimacy of his son, Jesus Christ. We come, really, to the end of all things. There is no higher court that you can appeal to when you come to God. No one you can go to behind, beyond him. There's no voice that is louder than his. No standard that is more important. He has the final, and I mean absolutely final say about any subject. And when he speaks about eternal life and whether or not we have it, it is him to whom we must listen. If you find yourself wondering whether or not you have eternal life, doubting your salvation, whether or not we're going to heaven when we die, then you need to understand what God has said, that he has spoken on the subject. And really ask yourself, do I believe God? Do I trust what he has said on the subject? Sometimes we are prone to kind of get into an argument with God. Maybe not intentionally, but he says something, and either we want him to say more than he has said, or maybe we want him to say less than he has said, or we want him to say something different than what he has said. And so we go on wishing that you would say more, say less, or say differently than what he has said. And we kind of argue with God. And we argue with God in a way when we have unbelief, when he has spoken, and we choose not to believe what he has said. If we do that, we are effectively saying to God, God, you are wrong in what you said. I do not believe what you have said is true. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, would we? But when we don't believe what he has said, we effectively do that to God. We may do it subtly, but we do it nonetheless when we don't believe what he has said, declared, and spoken. And so we need to come with an attitude of humility to what God has said, to what he has testified to, to accept and embrace what he has said, full-hearted belief, taken at his word. God's word is always reliable, never false for It is always true, and we should always believe and when he testifies to something, when he basically stakes his name on something, we need to believe in Paul. And God has done that. He has made a testimony. And the testimony is about his son. Kind of a fascinating concept, isn't it? To put God in a situation where he can't really be put in there, but he puts himself there where he is declaring something and he is saying that he swears by it. he swears by no name higher than his own and he asserts that this is true what does he do that what does he do what has he done that about many people would want god to testify to a number of They'd want him to testify about why they'd want him to testify about why the personal loss and suffering want to testify about certain questions that pop up into your mind, you know, in the way you'd like to have the universe explain to you. 
God doesn't answer all of our questions, but he has made a testimony that defies the main thing he wants us to know. God has spoken to us in his word, the Bible. In the summary of the whole of this book of books, although it addresses innumerable topics, innumerable things, interesting uh, to us, the main thing that this book is about, whether it's regarding history, or it's poetry, or it's prophecy, or it's genealogies, or it's wisdom, or it's gospels, or it's epistles, the main thing that this whole book testifies to is this, that God has given a testimony. And here's what it is in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 5. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That is in itself a superb summary of the whole Bible that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That's what God is testifying to. The God of creation, the maker and sustainer of all things, the Almighty, the glorious one, the one who sits enthroned in the heavens and surrounded by the seraphim being praised day and night. This one has made a testimony. This holy one, the I am who I am, has spoken. God has done something. He has given us eternal life. This eternal one, this holy one, has given. It is his generosity rooted in his love that overflows in a gift. And that gift is given to who? Us. Us of all people. The unanimous testimony of Scripture is that humanity, every last one of us, is corrupt. Broken, sinful, rebellious. And that people, precisely people who are beneficiaries of the Almighty God's generosity, He has given us what? Eternal life. The very thing that we do not deserve. What we deserve is eternal death. The wages of sin is death, God has declared. And each one of us has sinned, and we deserve that condemnation. And yet what God gives, rather, is eternal life. The very life that he has, the quality of purity, holiness, joy, and peace that endures forever. That that will become God. He alone has that authority and claim. But we get to enjoy the very life that he has given to us and we get to enjoy it for all eternity without end and without fail. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Where is this life? Well, it's in His Son. This life is in His Son. It's not just that God sprinkles fairy dust over every last human. That's not what He does. There is a location of this eternal life, a place where it is found, and it was located in one exclusive spot, rather one exclusive person, and it is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is where God has placed this eternal life. And so there is only one point of access for anyone to have eternal life. That's the testimony of God. This is what he has made known in this world. This is what this whole passage is about. God made a testimony. The testimony is that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. As John elaborates on it, he actually goes on to say that there are three witnesses. There are three witnesses that are given. And we understand just by the context of this passage, as you read it, that God is behind all of this, that he is the one who is making this testimony. He kind of makes it through these three witnesses. There are three components of testimony that John brings forward to us. And it is the water, the blood, and the spirit. And we are told in verse 8 that these three agree. They're unanimous in what they testify to. They're not like those witnesses at Jesus' trial where they tried to get people together to try to get Jesus in trouble. They couldn't even agree about what they're trying to get Jesus in trouble about, how they're being at. But in this case, when the testimony comes down to regard the Son of God and it comes from God above, testimony does agree. Water, blood, and spirit do indeed agree. They are testifying about the Son of God. It says in verse 9, we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he had borne concerning his Son. This is testimony that God gives through these three components to basically declare that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and that in him is eternal life. That's what they're testifying to. Now, if you were to try to have your own way of giving evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and that in him is eternal life, you might go about it differently than the way God went about it. And it doesn't uh, have to be you as an example of how you would do it. Take, for instance, how Satan did it. I'm not trying to fake you with Satan, by the way, but just take, for instance, what Satan did in the wilderness after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and he came to Jesus and tempted him. And do you remember what Satan did? He started off his discourse with Jesus this way. If you are the Son of God, he basically wants Jesus to give some sort of testimony that he is indeed the Son of God. What does Satan's mind think would be good witness and evidence of Jesus being the Son of God? Do you remember the temptation? Well, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to Basically, use your power for selfish gain. Use it to satisfy your own hunger. And in doing that, there is going to be a display of your power, and it will be unmistakable who you are. That's the temptation of Satan. The temptation of Satan, number two, was this. If you are the Son of God. And Satan brought 
him up to the pit of Gilgamesh. Throw yourself down. And it's written, God's angels will bear you up. You will not strike your foot against the stone. Another display of supernatural power that Satan believes will confirm Jesus is indeed who he claims to be. That's the kind of witness or testimony. Great displays of power, turning stone into bread, throwing yourself off the temple and being borne up by angels. That's the kind of signs or testimony that Satan would do. Put on a big display, razzle and dazzle, show them how great you are with your power. That's a sign of Satan. That's what we would tempt Jesus. Of course, Jesus is a simple He did not do what Satan said to do. But that's the wisdom of Satan. Appeal to man's fleshly desire to see the big sign. Well, Jesus, we're told in verse 6, is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. This is the testimony of God to the Son, the water and the blood. The Spirit. It says, Jesus came by these things. This is a, a definite reference to his incarnation, his coming into the world with the purpose that he was sent by God as definitive, historic. Coming. This is not a continuous, ever-present coming. This is referring to something that has happened in space and time. Jesus, Son of God, taking on flesh, coming into the world. And when he came, it says that he came by water, blood. So what does that mean? What does it mean that he came by water and blood and power of these witnesses of him as the Son of God who has blind? But some suggest that Jesus coming by water and blood is a reference to John chapter 19, verse 34 and 35. After Jesus had been crucified and after he died, one of the soldiers took a spear and thrust it inside of Jesus. And it says that water and blood came issuing from the side of Jesus. And John himself testifies, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. I don't think that is exactly what's being referred to here in John chapter 5, the first John chapter 5, I Yes, the water and blood coming out of Jesus' side demonstrated that Jesus had died, and John the apostle testifies to be an eyewitness of that. But here John is saying that Jesus came by the water and the blood. Not the water and blood came out of Jesus, but rather he came by these things. They're indicative of the way in which Jesus came. He came in association with these things, with the water and blood. And this is the testimony, really, of God. So what does the water and the blood really being used for? Well, it's being used to testify that Jesus is the Son of God and he has eternal life. 
Well, what water and blood witnessed that? The witnesses to that. The best explanation of this, I think, is that water refers to the baptism of Jesus, and blood refers to the death of And I think this fits with what John is dealing with, is he has to deal with Paul's teachers. Because you gone through the study of 1 John, you've heard several times that John has to deal with people who are trying to infiltrate the church with some false teaching. And one of the things that they're trying to get away with is basically saying that Jesus as a man is just a man, that's it. And at his baptism, he was anointed with the spirit of Christ and became the Christ then. And when he went to the cross, before he went to the cross, the spirit of Christ departed from Jesus the man, and he was no longer Christ. So Christ didn't really die. That was the false teaching. But notice what John is saying and how he says it. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. They're really inseparable. They go together. If you just try to say Jesus came to Christ in baptism without having his death attached, then you really miss who Jesus is fundamentally. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. The water then does refer to his baptism. What happened at the baptism of Jesus that indicates he is the Son of God and that eternal life in him? We'll look back at Gospel of John, chapter 1. We see an account of the baptism of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 32. This is John the Baptist referring to that event of the baptism of Jesus. It says, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. It's not that Jesus became the Son of God when he was baptized. It's that the baptism showed who he already was. That's what John was told. This is the Son of God, the one who received that the Spirit sent on. And that's what John the Baptist testified to, that the Son of God was who he was because demonstrated that the Holy Spirit descended upon him. That was proof of who he was all along. The point is that the baptism was like the anointing of the king, demonstration of who this is. Did not make him such, it just showed who he was. The baptism of Jesus was done in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who was the herald of Jesus, the herald, the forerunner, the one who was the prophet. He was preparing people for the Lord who was to come, preparing the way of the Lord. 
he was telling people as they came to him, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was telling them to turn from their sins. And people were flocking to John in hordes and being baptized in the Jordan River because they were confessing their sin. And then along comes Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect one, who John recognized as the one who strapped but whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And when Jesus came to John, John tried to stop him. He said, don't be baptized. I don't need to be baptized by you. But Jesus insisted. He insisted on being baptized. And in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says, why? He says, when Jesus, I'm sorry, before that, he says uh, to John the Baptist, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John said to Baptized, and it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. He pulled the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am filled. What a remarkable thing that at the baptism of Jesus, Heavens were opened, and the voice from heaven declares, This is the Son of God, the Spirit of God. It rests upon Jesus. The Spirit is the one who has life. Jesus is going to be the one who gives the Spirit. And here you have the Son of God, who also has the ability to give life. Demonstrated at the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus was the commencement of his three years of ministry and the unmistakable declaration that he is the Son of God who has the Spirit who can give life. So he came by water. And that testifies to who he is. But not by water only, says John, but by the water and the blood. By his death also. The first witness testified to the commencement of his ministry as the Son of God. The second witness, the blood, testifies to the culmination of it as the Son of God. There are those precious words of Jesus that he hung on the cross as his blood had been shed, and he declared, it is finished. The baptism began its ministry, the cross brought it to a close. Blood indicative of his death. Well, how does his death testify to the fact that he is son of God? Well, as Jesus died on the cross, there was an expectation that he was accomplishing something. He was actually performing something that was on the cross. It wasn't a death like any other it was unique. In Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus says to his disciples, John and James, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
referring to is death. His death was a baptism of sorts, something he must pass through and be immersed in. His death accomplished something that was significant and substantial. You cannot have Jesus, the Son of God, without having his cross. Think about this. How many people would love to take Jesus without taking his cross? How many people would be glad to have his teaching and say what a great teacher he is, but leave him there and not go with him to the cross? Many people will have Jesus but not have his cross. They will have his teaching, but they will not have his death. They will take him as a teacher, but not as Satan. They will declare that he said nice things, but not accept that he died for sinners. And if you take him only as a teacher, then you have not really taken him. You have not taken what the Father sent the Son to accomplish. And John, the apostle, had to deal with people who were fine with the teaching of Jesus, but were uncomfortable with his death. And so John says he came not by water only, but by water and the blood. The cross is so controversial. It's scandalous. Oh, sure, it's kind of taken a place in our popular culture, and so there are crucifixes around. But the meaning of the cross, namely that Jesus, the Son of God, died in the place of sinners, is absolutely scandalous. It's the great scandal of Christianity. It's really the great scandal of the universe. Because here it is claimed that the heir of all things, the Son of God, condescended to a point where he hung on a Roman cross, shedding his blood, treated as common, brutalized criminal. That scandalized those who hurt you have to understand just how offensive that would be to a first century Jew to be told that their Messiah was crucified. To be hung like that was to be cursed by God. Their Messiah cursed? Never. Or for an inhabitant of the Roman Empire to be told that the Savior of the world was crucified? That was for criminals, convicts, those who are guilty. You don't put a God on a cross. You don't put the Son of God on a cross. It's absolutely scandalous, ludicrous for the mind's way of thinking that the Son of God would die that way. Whereas one pastor put it, why would the leaders of the early Christian movement have made up the story of the crucifixion if it didn't happen? Any listener of the gospel in either Greek or Jewish culture would have automatically suspected that anyone who had been crucified was a criminal, whatever the speaker said to the contrary. Why would any Christian make up the account of Jesus asking God in the Garden of Gethsemane if he could get out of his mission? Or why ever make up the part of the cross when Jesus cries out that God had abandoned him? These things would have only offended or deeply confused first century perspective pundits. The human rationale, the human mind wants to get away from the cross. And yet, 
This is the centerpiece of our faith. This is the absolute core of it. And it is one of the greatest proofs of its divine origin. Because no human would ever think of a Roman cross as the way to prove that someone is the Son of God. Human minds don't think that way. But our God is a God who confounds the wise. So this is God's way of showing that his wisdom and not man's will prevail. And it shows by putting man's wisdom in the realm of impotence and God's wisdom in the realm of power. Because through the, through the cross of Christ, how many countless people have been saved from their sin. And that is a demonstration that the blood shows Jesus is Son of God, gives eternal life, because it is through the cross that you are forgiven of your sins and your Through the cross, countless have been saved, the devil defeated, the rift between God and man closed, the heavens opened, the future guaranteed, death defeated, and the Son of God supremely came not by water only, but by water and the blood. Cross is a place where we come so personal, where it breaks our hearts and bends our knees to acknowledge that our God loved us so much that he gave his only son to die on the cross. It's the place where our pride is broken, where our hearts know what God is really like, the God of the grandest generosity gives our sin God his son. God testifies that eternal life within the Son. He showed it water by blood. There's a third, the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who testifies at 7 or 6, because the Spirit is the truth. The first two witnesses to the Son of God and eternal life in Him were, were historical events his baptism and his death were testimonies of God to the person and work of the Son. But here is the person of the Trinity, the Spirit, who witnesses to the same thing, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has eternal life in himself. It says that the Spirit testifies to present participle, to an ongoing action, something that is currently happening. Right now, as we speak, the Holy Spirit himself testifies. This is so good. Because we might think in baptism of Jesus and the cross of Jesus happened a long time ago. And it's really, really, really hard to believe that they happen and that they mean what they mean. I mean, it, it really does sound totally incredible 
to the modern year or the postmodern year to think that there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was actually baptized and the Spirit came and uh, the heavens opened, declared, This is my beloved Son. And it's also so hard for the postmodern year to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who went to the cross and died. It's not just hard for the postmodern ear to hear that, it's hard for the human ear to hear that. And you can talk all day long with all your breath to try to convince someone that it's true, who they must believe it. Whatever. You cannot get their heart to change. But what does it say? Spirit is the one who testifies. And this is so good because it shows that God himself is active in this world by his spirit, confirming these truths to the hearts of his people. Not against apologetics. It's a super important part of our evangelism and of the, the message of the gospel and the message of Christianity is a superb worldview that must be defended. It is the best of all worldviews. In fact, I believe and totally convinced it is the only reasonable worldview and we should defend that. But at the end of the day, our greatest defenses will not convince it. At the end of the day, it is the Holy Spirit. And this can give confidence to the uneducated, and the untaught who simply know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you can talk to a PhD scientist who has read and written more than you will ever do in your life, and you can tell him or her the simple message of the gospel, and if the Holy Spirit is at work in that person, the Holy Spirit can illumine that person to believe in that moment the gospel, because it is God himself testifying to truthfulness of the Son of God who has eternal life. This is so important that we remember spirit is the Why does it testify? Well, John tells us, because the spirit is the truth. You cannot modify The spirit has to testify to the truth because the Spirit is truth. One who is a gift of grace confirmed the truthfulness of this message in this world. It's the one who is true. Takes such a big burden off of our shoulders that the Spirit itself bears witness. This epistle, again, is written so that you would have assurance that you have eternal life. And I hope that it has done that. I spent this last few weeks looking at different ways it does that. It assures us that we have eternal life on the basis of transformation that happens in us, that we go from darkness to light, that we go from lies to truth, that we begin having a life that now is meaningful and purposeful that we no longer walk in the darkness of unrighteousness, but we actually live a life of some degree of righteousness now. That happens, and that gets you assurance that God has been kept working. We have assurance because 
being with eternal life, coming into our life, so comes love. The one who has been born of God loves brothers. So we have assurance of eternal life because something has happened to us where we actually love other people now, not just ourselves. We love them with sincerity and sacrifice, brotherly love. But at the end of the day, the way that you know you have eternal life is because God has placed his testimony on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his son, he said, he has eternal life. And God declares this down verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in itself. Whoever does not believe God is made a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, not have life. Ultimately, we rest our confidence on the fact that God himself has testified that Jesus is his son and his son has eternal life. And if you believe him, then you have eternal life. And if you don't believe him, guess what you're saying about God? That he is a God. So what do you believe? Jesus is the Son of God. If you come to him and confess him as Lord, he alone has eternal life. Take it to the bank, because God himself has stamped his word on his That's how the God of the universe gets saved. And it's true. And it's true. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us such great assurance that your Son is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he has come by water and blood to give that to us. We pray to your name, Father. We thank you that you've made it so plain. Not by our own searching our own witnessing, but by your spirit testifying to us. Give us witness that this is true. Father, I pray that you would give us that wonderful gift of confidence that you have declared that we have eternal life in your son. Father, for any who does not do not have, I pray that you would draw them to your son, that they might believe in him and have eternal life and then receive the gift. Of knowing the Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your son and your spirit. Your generosity to us. Praise you.